Our scripture for this morning comes from the first letter of John, as I pull it up to read for you here. From the first letter of John, the third chapter, verses 16 to 24. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. And by this we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we should believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. All who obey his commandments and abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. May God bless to our hearing and understanding these words of scripture. I place a lot of value in the power of words. As someone who enjoys reading, writing, and speaking, I know the capability of words to do both great and terrible things. And yet there are times when words fail us, or when our words fail others. When we do far too much talking, debating, arguing, and posting, And our words ring empty, hollow, without the real force of love behind them. There are no words adequate to express the evil of racial violence that we have seen for centuries in this country, and that is especially evident in these most recent police killings of unarmed black men and children. But when our own words fail, we have the companionship of scripture to turn to, to try to make sense of our world and God's role in it. Our passage for today comes from the first letter of John, one of many New Testament letters written to early church communities. While scholars aren't sure who this John was, or whether he is the same writer as that of the Gospel of John, there are parallels between these texts. One of these themes is the assertion that we know the love of God through Christ's laying down his life for us, which the writer argues here in what I just read, and which is also stated in John's Gospel when Jesus gives the disciples the new commandment that they love one another, he says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. 
So we know that these early followers of Jesus in some way understood Jesus' death to be a loving and sacrificial act, done out of love for the disciples and by extension all of us, both salvific in and of itself and exemplary as a model of faithful discipleship. Many, however, struggle with this suggestion, and rightly so. Womanist scholar Dolores Williams objects to glorification of Jesus' death as a sacrifice and substitution, particularly because of her lived experience as a black woman. In Williams' work, she argues that throughout American history, black women have been expected to serve in surrogate roles, taking others' places, often those of white women, to, to, to use her words, keep black women in the service of other people's needs and goals, with little concern for their own flourishing. Williams and others examine the glorification of sacrificial love in the Bible and point out that it can have real and dangerous consequences if people are urged to imitate Jesus, as this very passage urges us, lay down your lives for each other. Williams argues that there are quite enough black women bearing the cross, and that the church must question any biblical mandate that calls people into suffering as holy closeness to God. Interpretation here matters because it is only a few short steps from this commandment in 1 John to oppression packaged as the will of God. Put yourself in danger for others, even if they wouldn't do the same for you. Stay in that relationship, even if it isn't what you want, even if you aren't being respected and cared for, laying down your own safety for the desires of your partner. Don't think about your health or safety if doing so would inconvenience others. Give up your desire to go out at night or go for a run or go for a drive so that you will not appear to be in a place that you don't belong, threatening the safety of those who do. Don't defend yourself or fight back. What are we to do? with a passage that urges these sorts of interpretations, that urges self-sacrifice, even death, in a world where violent death is all around. This week it has been especially evident to me how much of an ideology of mandated sacrifice for certain people is ingrained in the very fabric of our culture. Over this past year, we have heard the lives of the elderly, the ill, essential workers and the incarcerated discussed as if they are a worthy sacrifice for our nation's economy and the freedom and liberty of those who are least susceptible to the COVID-19 virus. And as is most disturbingly pressing at the moment, we are seeing that the system of law enforcement in the United States is based on willingness to sacrifice certain lives for the continuation of an endless cycle of violence. Black Americans are expected to lay down their lives for white America's safety as it is protected by law enforcement. 
preserving the ownership and control of what are viewed as white spaces, protecting what the Reverend Dr. Kelly Brown Douglas calls America's cherished property of whiteness, takes precedence over the protection of life, and our society seems to take sacrifice of black souls for granted. Just this week, amidst the relief of Derek Chauvin being held accountable for the murder of George Floyd, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi said, and I quote, thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice. Do we not justify our structural and systemic sins through an ideology that asserts that black life freedom and flourishing are a reasonable sacrifice for the continuation of America's perception of safety and security? I don't pretend to understand the mind or heart of God in any full sense, but I do know this. The God whom I serve does not intend for us to engage in violence or to kill. My God does not and would not urge people to put themselves in dangerous situations, nor does my God delight in or glorify suffering. My God is as heartbroken and distraught as a grieving parent and infinitely more so at the horror of state-sanctioned violence against black and brown bodies. I have felt my heart condemning me each time I have turned on the news this week, reminded yet again that it is implicitly, supposedly, for my safety and the safety of those who look and speak and think like me that black lives are under constant threat. This is not what God wants for God's people. So how are we to understand John's instruction here to lay down our lives for each other just as Jesus laid down his life for us? I turn to verse 18 of what I just read. Let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. The Gospels give us a full picture of Jesus' earthly ministry, his mission of healing, teaching, radical acceptance, and love of all he met, and challenging of the socio-political order. Jesus told his followers to be the light of the world, to take care of those who are ill, regardless of what day it was or what consequence associating with them would bring, to love those who hate and persecute them, to refuse to be caught in endless cycles of retribution, and instead to act out a radical political peacefulness. And perhaps the saving power of Jesus' life and death comes not from the death itself, but from the fact that in truth and action, he lived out the love about which he spoke. His was not a love that was talked about when it was convenient, not one that he spoke about publicly among some groups and hid among others, not one that he abandoned when the risk for his own safety and comfort grew too large. What Jesus did was not to clang gongs and cymbals, as Paul says, and to speak empty platitudes, but to truly live out love wherever it took him, even to the cross. The specter of that cross, what Williams called the image of human sin in its most desecrated form, 
That did not stop him. Jesus truly led by example in his ministry, not in dying a death that we ought to imitate, literally, but in living out a life worthy of the stories he weaved and the message he lived and died to make known. He laid down his life for his friends, and he became a model for faithful witness and service to the embodied, incarnate love of God, not by mandating death, but by clinging steadfastly to the empowerment that all have to choose the pursuit of abundant life again and again, even in the face of certain death. The sacrificial choice to stand by God's truth to the end was his. The power of Jesus' sacrificial love is not in the dying, but in the living. The authentic living out of everything Jesus preached about, even until his final breath. Friends, I tell you again that God does not wish for any of you to become a martyr. God does not want you to jump up on a cross, ready to imitate Jesus, shedding blood for violence's own sake. God does not hope for your pain, and when hurt does come, God suffers alongside you. No, God's calling on your life is not that you would die the horrific death that Jesus did, but it is to sacrifice, to surrender your own privilege, to realize that all deadly violence is a subversion of God's call on the life of God's people, to put others' lives at a higher value than your beliefs about law and order, about legal and illegal, to truly listen to testimonies about life experiences even when they make you feel guilty or uncomfortable, to not just say that black lives matter but to mean it, and for it to be unmistakable to anyone who knows you. To take chances, step out of your comfort zone, risk reputation and relationship when it means standing by what you believe and standing alongside your siblings who also bear the image of our beautiful creator. God is not calling them to die either. We ought to lay down our lives Our security, our self-righteousness, our shame, our selfishness, our embarrassment, our insecurity, our ingrained biases for the abiding love of God that lives in our black and brown siblings. When we lay these things down, we can work towards making the abundant love that God offers, the abundant life that God offers, truly available to all. I can't say that I have the answers to how we can make progress and pursue a future where a traffic stop does not spell a death sentence for Dante Wright, where a no-knock search warrant does not bring Breonna Taylor to her final moments, where George Floyd can breathe, where Trayvon Martin can walk home with his Skittles and tea, and where so many black mothers' arms are still full of their beautiful children with bright futures before them. But I do know that love that overcomes racism and white supremacy is the commandment which God is giving all of us today. 
We must say their names, yes, but that is not and will not be enough. Our words will fail, will be insufficient, as long as we are not willing to lay our lives before those who are calling for our help. We can give thanks to God for this week's judicial condemnation of violence against black bodies as murder, but we must not allow ourselves to think that a conviction within such a death-dealing system will solve the problem. Real justice, God's justice, is so much broader than that. There are smart and creative people all around us who are speaking from their experiences and sharing ideas for how to stop this endless cycle of violence. And we just need to be brave enough to lay down that which holds us back and follow their lead, acting in faithful love. Let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. It is in our loving action that the Holy Spirit truly moves, and we may know the abiding presence of God. Amen.